Hello everyone and welcome to the first official episode of Kaiju Carnage. This is your host, Cal the Kaiju Guy. Today we are going to be talking about the original 1933 film, King Kong. Now before I get into actually talking about the movie, I gotta give some background that led up to the creation of the movie. At the time, in the 30s, jungle films were very popular. The only problem was they were extremely formulaic. And every single one of them basically followed the same exact premise. You would have either an explorer or a scientist that would go into this remote area. He would just be going in to study or something like that. And then there'd be some kind of horrible terror that he would discover there. Be it dinosaurs or, you know, just regular lions and tigers and things like that. Uh, there was usually a leading actress that would also be in the movie. She would be the love interest to the explorer or scientist. And they were very popular, but like I said, they were extremely formulaic. They all, like, it didn't leave much to the imagination for audiences to watch. They basically knew just about exactly what was going to happen whenever they would go in to watch the movie. Another reason that those type of movies were so popular during that time were because of primates, like apes and things like that, because they were very rare to find in zoos. So about the only time that uh, people could see apes would be to go to a movie and see them on screen. So the, the demand to see primates was very, very high. Jungle Films were launched here in the States with a movie called Beasts in the Jungle in 1913. It was a very popular film, it was a huge hit, and it spawned other jungle films to be made that would equally become popular later on. It inspired Tarzan in 1918, it inspired The Lost World in 1925, and it's because of that movie that jungle films became the trend that they were in the late 20s and early 30s. There was a man by the name of Willis O'Brien, and he worked on The Lost World. The reason why I mention him is because The Lost World is best known for its stop motion of the dinosaurs. That's the film's legacy. When most people talk about the original Lost World film, that's the first thing that pops into their mind is how good the stop motion uh, CGI was back then. And Willis O'Brien is the man that worked on that. I dropped his name because he eventually would work with Cooper on King Kong. He would be the head animator for all of the stop motion and everything like that for the film King Kong. Because of the jungle film trend that was beginning to get traction here in the States, there was a studio called Congo Pictures, and they released a fake documentary and I'm going to go on ahead and apologize in advance because I know I'm probably probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this film. Uh, it was called Ngagi, and it was released in 1930. By today's standards, now, it's considered to be an exploitation film because the film was basically about gorillas having sex with black women and having human-ape hybrid children. So, yeah, like, the movie is absolutely an exploitation film. However, regardless of what it is considered today, at the time, whenever it was released, it was a huge hit. It was popular, everyone lined up to go see it, and it ended up grossing $4 million in its box office run. $4 million may not sound like very much by today's standards, but back, back then... In the late 20s, early 30s, 4 million was a lot because movie tickets only costed like 25 cents back then. To put that into perspective, 4 million in 1930 equals about 63 or 64 million by today's uh, dollar amount. So, and even that's still pretty low compared to some of the bigger blockbusters that we have. But, you know, it was a very huge hit and. Like, people just loved it. Now, Cooper never has stated that that movie is one of the inspirations behind King Kong. 
but it is very heavily speculated that the only reason why King, uh, King Kong got greenlit by RKO Pictures is because of the popularity of that movie. And whenever King Kong was pitched to RKO and they heard the basic premise of it, in their minds, their thought process was basically like, gorilla, sexy women, equals money. Sure, go on ahead and make the movie. Marion Cooper is the man that created King Kong and would go on to write and, well, write parts of and direct the movie. Let's talk about him for a little bit and the inspiration behind coming up with the concept for King Kong. Whenever he was a child, he read a book called Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa. And, you know, obviously that's just about adventures and things in Africa. And so he was, he loved that book because of the parts where it talks about apes. Like he just, he became very fascinated with apes by reading that book. He, his love for apes furthered in 1929. Whenever he was studying a, a tribe of baboons in Africa for a movie that he was doing at the time. And he pretty much just followed this tribe around and studied them, saw their movements, saw the way that they interacted with each other. And it caused him to love apes even more. Not too long after that, he reads a book called The Dragon Lizards of Komodo, which the title of that is uh, pretty self-explanatory. It's about Komodo dragons. And... So he already loves apes. He reads that book about Komodo dragons. Uh, another thing that inspired King Kong was simply he just he had a dream one night. Uh, and the dream was just a big gorilla terrorizing New York City. And whenever he woke up, he was like, man, I, want, I could do something with that eventually. So he's starting to put things together. He loves apes. He had the concept of a uh, of a gorilla terrorizing New York City. He wants to have Komodo dragons be in the film. Originally, he wanted to have multiple Komodo dragons go up against multiple gorillas, and it just kind of be like an all-out war between the two species. Now, naturally, there that, that would have been very difficult to pull off. Not just you know, pretty much impossible to get it done with actual animals. But even doing stop motion, it would have been so costly that there's no, there wasn't a studio out there that would have okayed, yeah, we're just going to have a few scenes of an army of Komodos going up against an army of gorillas. Yeah, we'll, we'll okay that. That would have been way too expensive back then. So he tweaked the concept just slightly and decided to go with, it's going to be just one Komodo versus one gorilla. At some point in time in the movie, a woman would be introduced into the movie, and the only reason that he wanted to have a woman in the movie to begin with was because he was, the biggest criticism of his movies at the time was that he had very little to no romance in many of his movies. And so whenever he was first coming up with the concept of King Kong, he decided to go on a, he just, you know, got ahead of the curve and was like, I'm putting a woman in there just so I can please those critics that say that there's hardly no romance in my films, I'll put her in there, I'll give her a love interest, and I'll make that happen. For the majority of the movie, he came up with saying that a remote island would be the setting, and the gorilla would die a very spectacular death in New York. And so you have everything that's lining up now. You have a gorilla versus a Komodo dragon, at some point in time, it's going to be brought to New York. It's going to die. There's going to be a woman. The basic concept for King Kong had been born. He originally pitched this idea to Paramount, but they turned him down because, quite frankly, it was too expensive. The Great Depression was going on at the time, and to get the type of shots that he would want, not even just for uh, stop motion or anything, just to get even real shots of Komodo dragons or gorillas, it would be very costly to send entire film crews to these areas. And so Paramount was just like, no, we're, we're not going to foot that bill. We can't do it. And then, like I said earlier, they knew 
you know, if they couldn't send him to location, that there would have to be stop motion for the Komodo dragons and the gorillas, and that would just be way too costly. And all in all, they just basically said, we don't have the budget for that. And so Paramount sent Cooper packing and said, we're not doing it. Now, Cooper had a friend by the name of David Selznick. And he, David had actually gotten hired by RKO thanks to Cooper. Cooper had gotten him a job. Now, for whatever reason, whatever David did, be it his work ethic or whatever, he ends up becoming the vice president of RKO at some point in time. So as a, to repay the favor to Cooper for getting him a job and allowing him to basically become vice president, he reaches out to Cooper and makes him his own executive assistant. One of the perks of becoming the executive assistant was that David promises Cooper, you can make whatever movie you want. Like, you will have full reign to do what you want. It's all yours. So, Cooper said, okay, let's do it. He accepts the job. The very first film that he starts working on is The Most Dangerous Game. The Most Dangerous Game was going to be set in a jungle, and a huge jungle set started being built because travel was just not an option. So they decided to go with building fake sets. And so a huge jungle set was being built for the most dangerous game. They hired a, mo they hired a man by the name of Ernest Schudesack. He would direct the movie. Robert Armstrong and Faye Ray would star. Now, even though Cooper had decided to jump on the most dangerous game, he turned his attention to another movie that RKO was doing called Creation. And it was out of control at that point. It was way over budget. Anything that could go wrong would go wrong. It just, it was a nightmare of a production. Nothing was going right. Now, O'Brien, who worked on The Lost World, was going to be working on the movie Creation. He was going to be working on the stop motion for dinosaurs because the basic premise of the movie was there was just going to be a shipwrecked crew on an island with dinosaurs. And so O'Brien was brought in to work on uh, the stop motion with the dinosaurs. Cooper, as he's, you know, looking over, seeing what he could do with the movie to see what he can do to get it back on track, he starts looking at O'Brien's work with the dinosaurs, and he has an idea. Instead of doing a Komodo, he would just use a T-Rex for the concept that he had created. And the more he observed O'Brien's work, the more that he could see what could be done, the more he was liking the idea of a T-Rex being the thing that battles the gorilla. The only problem that he had now was that a T-Rex is significantly larger than your average gorilla. So the solution to that was very simple. He supersized the gorilla. So now... The concept for King Kong is starting to become more what people know and love about it today. T-Rex versus King Kong. I mean, a uh, giant gorilla, I'm sorry. There was already a huge jungle set that was built for creation. There were already actors and actresses and a director put in place and everything. So everything, the more he got to looking at it, the more he was like, I can morph this movie creation into... The movie that I have in my head, everything's already here. I can I can make my movie. And so that's what he decided to do. Now, naturally, he was given the promise that he could make his own movies, but at the end of the day, you still need permission from your boss. So he goes to RKO and he pitches the idea. RKO was very wary about it because creation was already way out of control over budget. And they had spent so much money on it already. It was a terrifying idea to RKO to just start over on a new movie from scratch. And they still haven't made a dime off of what they had been spending so far. But there was a huge presentation that was put together uh, by Cooper, O'Brien, um, <clears throat> Armstrong was there, uh, Faye Ray was there. And they put on this huge 
uh, this huge show to try and persuade RKO to make the movie. And RKO eventually caved. They gave Cooper permission. Go on ahead and make your movie. Cooper scraps creation. Just shuts it down permanently. We're no longer working on that movie. And production, script writing, everything for King Kong would begin immediately. So Cooper reaches out to British best-selling adventure author Edgar Wallace. And he wants Wallace to write the screenplay and a novel for the movie. Now, the reason why he wants a novel written for the movie is because he didn't know how excited the audience would be at that time to just want to go watch a movie about a giant gorilla battling a T-Rex because that was just the basic, the basic idea for the movie at that time. And he just didn't know if audiences were going to respond well to that. He, however, he did know that Edgar Wallace had a massive fan base. And Edgar Wallace was a very successful author. And so if he could get Wallace to write a novel on it, he could market the film as based on the novel by Edgar Wallace. And he believed that that would draw in more audiences to want to go see the movie because then it's no longer just some random movie. It's based on a novel written by a best-selling author. So, he reaches out to Wallace, tells him, write the screenplay, write the novel. This is what I want done. Wallace, he accepts, he jumps on it, let's get it going. He begins writing the screenplay on January 1st, 1932. He presents the first draft to Cooper on January 5th. It, it took him five days to write the original screenplay. The title that Wallace gives the movie that he was also going to title his book was just simply The Beast. The only problem was Cooper was not a fan of the original screenplay. There were massive revisions that he wanted done. He just he was not happy with many things that Wallace came up with. So he sends it back to Wallace, sends him a list of things that he wants to change. Uh, take this out, take that out, add this in, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, basically rework it. Wallace agrees, but it took him a little while to get to it. Like for, you know, whatever reasons. He, he's a best-selling author, you know, I'm sure he was busy. So it takes him a little while to get to it. And whenever he finally decides to get started on it, unfortunately, he passes away on February 10th. And he wasn't able to make any of the revisions that Cooper had wanted. Now, of the original screenplay that Wallace created, only the basic plot line ends up being used in the final film. All, just about every detail is lost, but the basic plot line remains there in the final film. And because of his contribution to the movie, Cooper actually ends up crediting him as a producer on the movie. Well, now Cooper needs a new writer. So he hires a man by the name of James Ashmore Creelman, who was working on The Most Dangerous Game at the time, and he brings him in to start working on King Kong. Now, he didn't want to have a repeat of what happened with Wallace by sending him a draft uh, Wallace coming up with all these concepts, sending it back to Cooper and, you know, Cooper not being happy and all that. So Cooper decides he's going to work directly with Creelman so that they can create the screenplay for the movie. There were several draft, several drafts that were written. Uh, the title to the movie that Wallace had come up with was The Beast. Cooper and Creelman now give the movie the working title, The Eighth Wonder. Yeah, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, Wallace, in the original draft, Wallace had created, you know, his original characters for the movie, and it was during this process that Creelman and Cooper were working together that they decided to change up some of the characters. There was a man uh, that Wallace had created called Danby Denham. Does that last name sound familiar? Hmm. He was a big game hunter. He ends up becoming Carl Denham, the film director. 
Wallace had created a character by the name of Shirley. She would end up becoming Anne Darrow. John would end up becoming Jack Driscoll. And it was also during these draft rewrites that Cooper came up with the concept of Beauty and the Beast. He didn't know when he wanted it in. He didn't know how he wanted it in. But at some point in time, he decided he wants a Beauty and the Beast angle worked into the movie. Another thing that was changed from Wallace's original screenplay was Kong's escape. Wallace had King Kong escaping from Madison Square Garden originally, and so Cooper didn't want to deal with Madison Square Garden, so they end up changing it to Yankee Stadium. Again, then a little while later, he wasn't happy with Yankee Stadium. It ended up changing a few more times until eventually it ended up landing in the Broadway theater, which ends up making its way into the final film. Another thing that Cooper wanted to change from Wallace's screenplay that he was not happy with was that Wallace had given King Kong some cute moments. And Cooper didn't want that. He didn't want Kong to be cute and cuddly and, and all that. He wanted Kong to be strong and powerful and tough and the reason why he wanted him like that was because he felt that his death at the end of the movie would be felt way harder by the audience. Because he wanted the audience to believe that Kong was invincible at that point in time. I mean, he fights a T-Rex to the death. He fights natives and they can't stop him. He escapes his captors in New York. He climbs all the way to the top of the Empire State Building. So by the time the planes would show up, he wanted the audience to believe what well, Kong's taken down everything else that's come his way. He's going to be able to handle these planes. It's not a big deal. And he, he just knew that it would add more shock factor to the audience whenever, no, the planes do end up killing Kong and he meets his death by them. So while they're working on all of these drafts, Creelman ends up having to step away from Kong. Even though he had done a lot of major work on Kong at that point in time, while all of that was happening, he was still working on the most dangerous game, and he's trying to split his time between both of them, and he just can't. The time constraints for the most dangerous game was beginning to really be, it was becoming crunch time for him, and so... He pretty much told Cooper, I have to step away. I have to go finish the most dangerous game. I'll return to Kong as soon as I can. So now Cooper yet again needs another writer. He hires a man by the name of Horace McCoy. He brings him in. He pretty much hands him what they had already worked on and says, you know, put your twist on it. Come up with what, what you think would be good to be in the movie. McCoy ends up coming up with the island natives. He comes up with the wall. He comes up with sacrificing the maidens to King Kong. He came up with some pretty big points of the movie that people, uh, you know, they're very, they're very well-known moments of the movie. This guy came up with it. And unfortunately, Cooper did not feel that he had contributed enough to the film, so McCoy ends up going uncredited in the final version of the movie. Now, while all of that was going on, let's throw another wrench into it, shall we? RKO steps in. They have a problem with the movie in that they believe it takes King Kong way too long to show up on screen, and they're very worried that an audience that goes into this movie to see a giant gorilla is going to get very bored and walk out of the theater because said gorilla is not showing up. And so they met with Cooper and they wanted they tried to work they tried to convince him to introduce Kong earlier in the movie. I'm talking like maybe ten minutes into the film is whenever they wanted him to show up. Cooper, however, stood his ground um, was basically like, no, I don't want him to show up early. He intentionally wanted Kong to show up very late in the film because he felt that building the suspense would be good for whenever he finally does show up 
and it would be way more exciting and people would just be like, man, I waited so long. There he is. And he be he just believed that building suspense would be a, a much better route to take than just shoehorning him in earlier in the movie. And for those of you who are curious, it takes a grand total of 47 minutes before King Kong shows up on screen. So, after, you know, more script writing and everything goes down, eventually Creelman returns full time. He's done with the most dangerous game. He comes back. Let's get started on it. Let's do it. So Cooper takes everything that him and McCoy had worked on, hands it to Creelman, work with this, see what you can do out of that, see what happens. So uh, Creelman does his thing, presents his draft to Cooper, and lo and behold, because Cooper is a very picky man, he wants things done a certain way, he had a certain vision in his head, uh, he did not care for Creelman's final draft. So he brings in a lady by the name of Ruth Rose to rewrite the movie. So the first thing she does is retitle the movie from The Eighth Wonder to just simply Kong. King would end up being added later to the movie not so it wouldn't confuse audiences with documentaries that had one-word titles because back then... Usually, if a movie had just one word title, it was some kind of documentary. There wasn't a whole lot of movies back then that was just one word title. And so, whenever she titled it Kong, somebody else brought it up to Cooper. Well, people might confuse this for a documentary. Let's throw something else in there so that, you know, people will be able to distinguish it more as just a regular movie. And so, they decided to throw King in front. And so then the movie was officially titled King Kong. So now we have a script. Everything is coming into place. RKO is on board with everything that's going on. It's time to actually start making the movie. But this movie's already had so many problems. Why not throw one more problem in there? Because Cooper wanted to direct the movie. And so did his old buddy, old pal, Shodisak. He wanted to direct the movie. However... Both direct, both of them had very different directing styles. Cooper was more with being able to create good action sequences, and he was more fast-paced. He also paid more more attention to detail, whereas Shudasak was more into dialogue, conversations, setting things up. You know, pretty much not just regular scenes with uh, human characters is what he was good at. So after a lot of back and forth deciding who would direct, they ended up coming up with a compromise. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, Cooper would direct, he would oversee O'Brien and direct all of the stop motion scenes. And Shudasak would handle all of the dialogue and just regular scenes with just the regular human characters. Now, one of the things that Kong is most known for is its groundbreaking use of stop motion. Stop motion had been a thing earlier. You know, O'Brien had worked on other movies with stop motion, but not to the level that King Kong was. But... These scenes were extremely difficult to shoot. I don't know if y'all know how stop motion works, but you would basically they would basically take the models, put them in a pose, and snap a picture of it. Then they would move the models just slightly, take a picture of it. Move it again, take a picture of it. Or not you know, necessarily taking a picture, but recording it as they were just slowly moving. And it's a very painstaking process to get done. For example, the scene, one of the scenes that King Kong is most well-known for, arguably the most well-known for scene in King Kong, is the fact that he fights a T-Rex. Filming that sequence of King Kong versus the T-Rex took seven weeks to film. Imagine working and, like, and you watch the movie and you see the scene... And it's really not that long, like maybe two, two, three minutes, something like that. And to know that 
for just that two or three minutes of war, of what we see in the movie, and it took seven weeks to shoot. That just uh, that that's that's rough. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. I can't put it any other way than that. It's just it's rough. Seven weeks. Now, whenever there would be scenes of just the models, like Kong and the dinosaurs and everything, um, they were just they were miniatures. Like the models for King Kong, I believe they had two models that were eighteen inches tall, and either one or two King Kong models that was twenty four inches tall. So, for some of the scenes, they built a makeshift mini jungle set but for most of them that involved just the models they had actually painted a jungle backdrop onto some glass and they would just move the models there to give it the illusion of actually being uh in the jungle the hardest part of production for this movie was combining the stop motion with the live action because before this movie Anytime there would be stop motion involved, it would really, it would show like in, in uh, movies done before this one, you would see a live action scene and then like the camera would pan to the stop motion scene and then it would kind of go back and forth. You didn't see a combination of live action and stop motion in the same scene a whole lot. You just didn't. But Cooper wanted to have it he wanted to have both things combined in this movie because he wanted this movie to be so great. Now, one of the ways that they would get it done was they would film the stop motion first. They would film the models having, you know, doing whatever it was that they were doing with the glass background, and then they would project that scene onto a giant screen, and they would have they would bring in the actors and they would act out their part in reaction to whatever was happening on that screen. One of the examples of this happening was the actress Faye, who plays Anne. She sat in a fake tree to react to Kong and the, uh, the T-Rex battling each other. She had to sit in this fake tree for a 22-hour period acting out her observations of the battle. And just, you know, because whenever they would set it up, she would be in the tree, something wouldn't look right, the scale would be off or something, or she didn't react as if she was actually there. She would react as if she was just watching something on screen, and Cooper would just keep, no, try it again, try it again, try it again. And she ended up sitting in that tree for 22 hours. The entire film itself took eight months to shoot. The live action scenes needed a whole lot of reshoots, like because just they were rushing through trying to make the movie. And whenever Cooper would look at the final version of it, there were just little things that he saw that he didn't like. He would end up calling the actors back to reshoot something many of the times after like whenever he would call them in to reshoot they would already be working on another movie and he would contact them and basically say i need you to stop working on that movie come back and reshoot this scene for my movie and so you know they would come back they would make they would shoot whatever scenes it is that he wanted and after that filming was finally done it was a very rough grueling eight months for Cooper, for all of the writers, all of the actors and actresses, but they finally end up getting it all done. The final cost for the movie was, and I know I'm about to be precise here, but the final cost for the movie was $672,254.75. $200,000 over its initial budget. Now, all of that was just talking about the production and the creation of Kong and everything, but now I'm just I'm gonna give I'm gonna take just a little bit of time to give a few fun facts about the movie. One thing uh, I wanted to talk about was the creation of Kong's name. Uh, 
Cooper got the idea for Kong, for one, he liked words with a strong K sound, like Congo or Komodo or something like that. And originally, he, whenever he first came up with the concept for the movie, before he was shot down by uh, Paramount, he wanted to go on location to the Congo to shoot the gorilla scenes. And naturally, you know, he was told no. And the word Congo, he really liked. And so he decided to name his gorilla Kong. He just simply dropped the O, changed the C to a K, and he had his name. So Kong is technically named after Congo. Uh, during the movie, when they were making it, Kong's roar that he has, it was a recording of growls from lions and tigers. They just took, they recorded some growling sounds from lions and tigers. They combined the two, and then they slowly played that recording backwards. And that ended up being Kong's roar. The dinosaur sounds, they would use an air compressor. Don't ask me how. I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, it's just, I think it's pretty cool that they were able to use uh, an air compressor. Uh, the T-Rex roar was a mixed combination of different puma screams, like from just different types of pumas, and they would take the ones that sounded pretty unique, mash them all together, that ended up becoming the T-Rex roar. Another fun fact is that RKO, while they were pretty hopeful for the movie, they had spent so much money on creation before it got scrapped, and then ended up spending even way more money on Kong than they initially thought, that they just, for the final film, they did not feel that they could put an original score into the movie. And so they didn't want to pay for it. They just wanted to pick and choose music from other movies and just put it in there. This was unacceptable to Cooper. Like, he worked so hard on this movie. He's worked so long on this movie. The concept behind the movie has been in his head for so long. There was no way he was about to use hand-me-down music from other movies. So Cooper ended up paying $50,000 out of his own pocket so that that movie could be scored. Now, even though he paid for it out of his own pocket, eventually... RKO did repay him after they started reaping in a whole lot of benefits from the movie after it started making uh, a lot of money. The score marked a very significant change in music being in films. Like, at the time, a movie like King Kong was known as something called a talkie. Because... In the 20s, you know, up to like the 20s, they were make it was just silent films, and there would be music in there, but it was that's all it was was just music, and they were called silent films because there was no lines of dialogue, there was no sound effects or anything like that, and whenever the first movies started coming out that would record audio and dialogue, people to distinguish whether or not. It was what we consider to be a regular movie nowadays or a silent film back then. They just referred to it as a talkie. King Kong is the first feature-length talkie film to have a musical score. It was also the very first Hollywood film to have a thematic score instead of background music. See, back then, a lot of times, just whenever... If there were scenes that was going on, there really wasn't a whole lot of music going on. And there would be music like whenever people were traveling and things like that. But it would just be music here and there. This was the first movie that had a legit score pretty much throughout the entire film. It was the first movie to use a 46-piece orchestra. This film was the first one to be recorded on three separate tracks for sound effects, dialogue, and music. There was so much heavy emphasis put on the music behind this movie that it opened up in Radio City Music Hall. 
So this movie, like, it was very groundbreaking whenever it came to the music and to the score of this movie to where people, you know, you think the way scores are used in movies nowadays, you don't think anything of it. If you enjoy film scores and the way that they're sprinkled into movies and the way that they just, you know, an entire score can go through an entire film, you have King Kong to thank for that because it was the first film to utilize it. So now we have everything that's done. Film is shot. Film is edited. It's all good to go. We've got a score. Time for the big premiere. At the time... Tickets were anywhere between, you know, in 19, you know, the early 1930s. Tickets was anywhere between 30 to 75 cents, something like that. And a movie opening up in theaters back then was way different than what it was now. Before there was going to be a wide release, it was in Radio City Music Hall. There was going to be 10 shows a day of King Kong. There were other movies there, but King Kong was pretty much going to be the main one that was featured at Radio City Music Hall. For the first four days that it showed in the Music Hall, um, every single showing was sold out. The movie set an all-time attendance record for indoors. Like, audiences would be, you know, going around the corner, being in line, waiting to be able to see King Kong because there was so much buzz behind it. Uh, the novel had come out. Like, everyone was excited to see King Kong, and it was selling out left and right. And it ended up being a massive success. Way more than what RKO or Cooper or any of them could have imagined. It ended up going on to make $5 million worldwide. Like, remember, Ngagi, that I talked about way at the beginning of the episode, that movie was considered to be a huge, massive hit, and it had grossed <clears throat> uh, $4 million throughout its entire run. Well, Kong ends up grossing $5 million. So remember, with the uh, adjusting for inflation, if $4 million back then was worth about 63 or 64 million, then it's safe to say that 5 million was worth, you know, possibly uh, 70s or 80s of, uh, for million. So it was a massive success. They loved it immediately. RKO greenlights a sequel. They wanted a sequel. Like, they wanted to cash in more for the movie. And, you know, the sequel to that movie was Son of Kong. It was released. Um, it was released nine months after uh, the original King Kong film, and I'll be doing an episode on Son of Kong eventually. I'll get there, but uh, I'm not going to talk much about that one now. So it was a massive hit. All the hard work had paid off for Cooper. Everything was going good, and. You know, throughout the years after that, King Kong has become a pop culture icon that whether you've seen his movies or know anything from like comic books or anything like that, people know what King Kong is. He's a giant gorilla. You know, they usually know that he was holding a girl in his hand at some point in time. And, you know, like it just his popularity just went on from there. So much so that RKO ends up licensing Kong to Toho, the studio that owned and created Godzilla in 1962. That movie, it's King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, it's my favorite King Kong slash Godzilla movie that there is. Is the movie that introduced me to Godzilla. Um, that movie was the first colored appearance of both kaijus um that movie was such a success that uh rko licensed toho king kong again and toho created the movie king kong escapes i'll also be doing an episode on king kong escapes and king kong versus godzilla uh in 1976 <clears throat> pardon me in 1976 there was a remake that at the time, it was a modern-day remake. 
And instead of, you know, the big climactic battle taking place on the Empire State Building, it took place on the World Trade Center. Uh, Ten years later, in 1986, there was a sequel to that, King Kong Lives. Uh, 2005, Peter Jackson's King Kong comes out, which is easily one of my favorite movies of all time. Not just in the kaiju genre, but just as movie a movie itself. I love Peter Jackson's King Kong. There was a video game based on the 2005 uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, uh, in which you split time playing with the humans, the human side of the story, and then also playing with King Kong. I was crazy about that video game whenever it first came out. I played it all the way through multiple times. Like It's, it's one of my all-time favorite games. I very much enjoyed it. Um, in 2017, we got Kong Skull Island, which was a reboot of the Kong franchise. They made him bigger and larger, more in line with the Toho King Kong that faced off against Godzilla back in the 60s. And in 2021, in just a very, very few short months, we will get Godzilla vs. Kong, the rematch that I've waited my entire life for that I'm very much looking forward to. All in all, the legacy of King Kong speaks for itself. Like, I've never met someone that did not know who or what King Kong was. Like, they may not know the details behind the movie or behind a book or something like that, and they may have never even seen the original film. I've never met someone that could not tell me who or what King Kong was. There's been 12 films. Seven of them were done by Hollywood. Two of them were done by Toho. Three of them were direct-to-video animated films. There's been animated TV shows. Three of them. He's made appearances in numerous video games. Um, <clears throat> in literature, he's been in two crossover books here recently. There was one called King Kong versus Tarzan. And that, that book is basically exactly what it is. It takes place uh, during the first film, and it's pretty much in between what happens whenever he's being transported from Skull Island to New York. He escapes. Uh, Tar he's in the general vicinity of Tarzan, and Tarzan has to try and help hunt him down to recapture him and everything. It's a good book. I recommend it. Read it. Uh, there's another one. I have not yet read this one. It's on my list of things to read, and it's called Doc Savage on Skull Island. I believe that was the title of it. I know it's a crossover between King Kong and Doc Savage, but um, it's on my list of books to read, and I'll get to that eventually. Uh, there are There's a prequel to the King Kong movie called Kong of Skull Island. Uh, it was originally a comic book, and it pretty much just chronicles how the natives get to Skull Island and how Kong becomes the last of his kind. Um, I believe it's actually being adapted into full-on novels and not just comics, but don't take my word on that. Um... But yeah, uh, I read a little bit of the comic, and it's very, it's very good. The artwork is very great. Um, just you know, again, if you're a fan of King Kong and you want more, you want to see what the and it's official. It's it's uh, it's officially licensed by the Cooper Estate, so it's the official prequel to uh, Cooper's King Kong. So <clears throat> if you're a fan of it, by all means. Go check it out. But, alrighty, guys. Uh, I apologize if this episode, if there are moments where I sound off or something like that. I know this was my first episode. I have a lot of kinks that I need to work out. I'm not very happy with uh, how some of it turned out. But, you know, it is what it is. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, uh... I guess that pretty much wraps it up for the OGs of Kaiju Part 1, King Kong.
Now, you know, King Kong, you know, anyone who watched my introduction episode knows what King Kong means to me. I have uh, lots of King Kong merchandise. I have uh, King Kong, the original film, uh, Son of Kong, the 1976 remake, Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong. You know, I've got numerous uh, action figures, ones from Skull Island or from Peter Jackson's King Kong. I've got uh, ones from the upcoming film in 2021. So I'm a massive King Kong fan. Kong started it all for me, getting into this wonderful genre. And, you know, he'll always be my favorite kaiju. That's, that's just never going to change. And to anyone out there who is also a massive fan of King Kong, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, I hope you learned something new. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to lie. Like, don't take my word for any of this that I just said. If you feel... That something may be a little questionable, by all means, look it up, verify it. The info that I got whenever I made this podcast could have been wrong. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, so that does it for the OGs of Kaiju Part 1, King Kong. I will be making another episode in two or three weeks. It'll be Part 2 to the OGs of Kaiju. The subject of that episode will be The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Which, if anyone knows anything about this genre, you know what that means. I'm getting closer to Gojira because the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms directly inspired Gojira. And I cannot wait to do an episode on that film. Uh, I rewatched it not too long ago. Uh, it still holds up. I'm a big fan of that movie. The stop motion is um, it's pretty amazing in it and i can't wait to get started on that episode now that king kong is behind me um next week i will be releasing an episode uh in a new series that i'm going to be doing called kaiju spotlight and the very first kaiju that i'm going to be focused on is king Ghidorah. i'm i'm so sorry king Ghidorah. King Ghidorah is my favorite kaiju in the Godzilla franchise. I, I don't love him as much as Kong, but he's he's definitely number two. And I'm basically just going to talk about the uh, the creation of the character, the inspiration behind creating him, the different uh, appearances that he's made in multiple media, the different versions of him from Des Ghidorah to Grand King Ghidorah to Kaiser Ghidorah. You know, I'm going to talk about all of it. And that's going to be uh, next week that I'll be doing that episode. So, again, I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any critiques, criticisms, uh, feedback, any questions, anything like that, you can go on Facebook, go like my page, Kaiju Carnage. It has the same exact profile pic as this uh, podcast does, so it'll be simple to find. And, you know, just shoot me a message on that for uh, anything that you have to say. And, yeah, I know, I'm, I know I've said this multiple times already, but seriously, thank you guys for all the support. Thank you for listening to this. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope you enjoy future episodes. And this was fun, guys. And y'all will be hearing from me again next week whenever I talk about King Ghidorah. So this is Kyle the Kaiju Guy, signing out.